Hello, everyone, and welcome to Employment Matters, a legal and HR podcast brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm your host, Pete Waltz. Occupational safety and health law and OSHA have received major attention in the national political arena as we change over to a new administration in the coming weeks. Employers still implementing safety-first best practices in the workplace are seeing changes in the regulatory and compliance landscape. In today's program, experts will discuss how 2021 could bring significant changes and updates for employers and organizations alike. Today's program is moderated by Rosalie McNamara, partner at Lathrop GPM in Kansas City, Missouri. As a bonus, we had a chance to survey some of our listening audience in advance of the discussion to gather their questions, which the panel will be addressing in their commentary. Let's join Rosie as she introduces the program and moderates the discussion. Thank you, Peter, and thank you, everyone, for being with us today. Good afternoon or good morning, depending on your time zone. We're looking forward to a great discussion. I wanted to first start with introducing our speakers for today. There are two in addition to myself. David Fortney is the co-founder of Fortney Scott LLC in the District of Columbia. And Bill Wayhoff is a member with Steptoe & Johnson PLLC in West Virginia. And then myself, Rosalie McNamara, Lathrop GPM. Looking forward to this discussion. Now that we've introduced the speakers, let us get started. So today we want to cover the following areas. And I will start by saying you're going to see the word likely and likelihood in many of these phrases. And you're going to hear that term a lot today. We are predicting, we are giving our best educated guesstimate based on experience of these two speakers as to what the law will be and what changes will occur in regulations and even potentially an emergency temporary standard. So we're going to cover whether the federal OSH law will be amended with increased enforcement and penalty mechanisms, whether, and again, is it likely how state whistleblower laws will supplement efforts to enhance federal laws, the likely issuance of nationwide emergency temporary standard, you're going to hear a lot about that from Bill Wayhoff, and the likelihood that federal contractors will have new workplace safety and health obligations imposed by executive order, which you're going to hear about from David Fortney. So we're looking forward to talking to you today. Let us move on and introduce Bill Wayhoff, who's going to cover a couple of the first areas for you. Bill, take it away. Well, thank you, Rosalie. It's a pleasure to be here with all of you today. As Rosalie said, the fact is that we are speculating to a degree as to what might occur, but it's very important to look at some, uh, some things that have happened in the past to give us a glimpse into the future. And that is really true when it comes to the possibility of legislation uh, in the new Congress relating to occupational safety and health. And of course, it's no uh, secret that occupational safety and health has gotten a lot of attention in the national press uh, in Washington from uh, the unions urging uh, OSHA to take uh, more action, different action than they're doing. And also for many years, there has been uh, the desire 
uh, on behalf of labor to pass new reform legislation uh, for the OSH Act to amend it, amend the Occupational Safety and Health Act that was signed in the law by Richard Nixon in 1970. And so when we look at that, we look at House Bill 1074 that was introduced uh, into this Congress and it did not um, pass because, you know, wouldn't make it through the Senate or whatever. But it's very instructive to look at some of the things that seem to be important uh, to the House majority, to those sponsors of the bill. First of all, right now, when an employer receives citations and they file a notice of contest, the abatement is not required until those citations become final. So let's say an employer goes to the federal OSHA area director uh, and uh, says, you know, gee, we'd like to adjust these or whatever. If the employer makes an agreement with that area director those, and they are not contested, then those citations, however they are agreed to, become final. But if the employer within 15 working days of receiving the citations files a notice of contest, then that goes to an entirely new agency called the Occupational Safety and Health Review Commission and uh, based in Washington with branches in Denver and uh, a little branch in Atlanta. Uh, and basically that consists of judges who will hear the employer's uh, citation contest as well as the government side, but it's an independent agency. So right now, and that can take, that process can take uh, nine months, a year, something like that, and then it can also go to the review commission. And until those citations become final at the actual review commission, which is a three-member commission um, uh, nominated by the president, confirmed by the Senate in Washington, D.C., then, then no abatement is required uh, regarding those citations. But the legislation, the, the Protect America Workers Act, which was introduced as House Bill 1074, would require immediate abatement so that the employer would have to Im immediately fix everything, even if they're contesting or they don't agree or they think the facts are wrong or what have you. Then we turn to criminal penalties right now under the OSH Act, if there is a death caused by a willful violation, then an employer can be charged with a misdemeanor. Now, some states have imposed, like Los Angeles County and Illinois, uh, different criminal penalties. But I'm talking now about the Federal Occupational Safety and Health Act. And there, it's a, it's a misdemeanor. And so often, there is no prosecution under that uh, federal act. But under the proposed, the legislation that was proposed in this Congress that may very well come uh, in the next Congress, be it reintroduced, um, the, any, any death caused by an employer knowingly, knowingly violating one of the occupational safety and health standards would result in a felony. And that employer could be, that person could be put in jail for 10 years and 20 years on a second 
So you can see, and that's just an example, there's five-year jail, there's on, on a serious injury. Uh, so you can see that that's a very different idea and uh, than the civil penalty system we currently have. And then third, the whistleblower system would be uh, revamped. That seems to be a very important uh, goal. And so not only would there be enhancements to the whistleblower protection, but there'd be a whole new uh, uh, judge process that's independent of the Occupational Safety and Health Review Commission that would adjudicate uh, these claims within the Labor Department. And so that would be um, a very different system than what we have now under 11C, uh, where there has to be a, uh, an action filed in federal district court. So it'd be much easier to obtain relief as a whistleblower if the individual was not happy with the investigation that OSHA did or what have you. Now, in regard to whistleblowers, there's a lot of legislation around the country. And uh, Rosalie has some uh, information for us that she'd like to offer. So, Rosalie? All right, Bill, before I move on, though, I wanted to tell everybody a little bit about Bill's background. Bill is an OSHA-authorized 30-hour general industry standard trainer and he's tromped around so many oil and gas and construction sites that he has muddy boots to prove it. So, and, and I also wanted to ask you a couple questions that have come in from the audience already for you, Bill. What is OSHA relying on now to issue citations to employers? Well, as many people know, you know, there's been, been a, a cry and a call for OSHA to issue an emergency temporary standard. And I'm gonna cover that a little later, but what they've been relying on is something called the general duty clause that requires every employer to provide employment and a place of employment free from recognized hazards that can cause serious injury or death. And that particular, that particular clause has been used to a degree, but the main force is the respiratory protection standard, which is 1910 in general industry, 1910-134. And so many of the violations that have been, been uh, uh, cited in the nursing home industry, uh, the meatpacking industry and what have you, meatpacking has been a, a fair number of general industry standards uh, violate alleged violations, but in the nursing home area, a lot of respiratory program uh, violations and many of those uh, nursing homes never used respirators before N95s. I happen to have a uh, an example. This is a Honeywell, which is a model that I kind of like because of the uh, the way the nose shapes. But anyway, so if a re an employer re is is requiring anyone in their workplace to wear an N95, now I'm not talking about a, just a face covering. A face covering is, is uh, different. This would be more of a face covering, you see. This is an actual N95 respirator. If you or any employer would be requiring employees to wear an N95 respirator to protect themselves, then you must have a respiratory protection program according to OSHA's current enforcement. 
Thank you. So, Bill, what's the most important thing that employers can do to avoid citations under the current administration? So the whole the whole safety and health area has moved from, well, these are the rules, follow them, to assessing your own risks, to prescribing your own fixes for those risks in your, um, in your uh, workplace. So that the best thing that employers can do is follow the OSHA uh, 4045, which is the latest set of guidelines indicating what kind of written plan for COVID-19 the employer would have, and then assessing whether there is a sufficient risk in your workplace to require respiratory protection, as opposed to just a face covering, which really just protects others from you. These respirators are designed to protect the wearer against others. So that's having the written plan and assessing whether or not you need to, to have respirators in your workplace. Those would be the two big things I'd say. So if an employer is issued a citation, how do they know if it's valid? So um, Dave, I think that you had a comment on what I was just saying, so I'd like to move to you. Sure, and, and then you can get to thank you. I just wanted to ask a question. As you're describing the current enforcement protocol, can you share with our audience how these CDC guidelines, because you have this OSHA general duty, and, and then we know that the, the general population is very aware that the CDC issues guidelines, and of course they update them and change them periodically. Does an employer need to worry about that? How does that fit in to, to what you've described? Some of the, thanks Dave, some of the OSHA uh, guidelines, uh, there are numerous OSHA guidelines that have been issued for uh, many, many industries on the OSHA website. I would say that employers should consult those first. Some of those guidelines do refer to CDC uh, guidance as well, but OSHA, it, it is, it is come, in, in my experience, OSHA is enforcing uh, what it, it itself has given in guidelines. And so that an employer can follow the CDC guidelines, but if they don't pay attention to what the OSHA guidance is, right. they could still receive a citation under either the general duty clause or as I said before, under the respiratory protection standard, uh, depending upon the situation. So that that is not a safe harbor uh, on the federal OSHA level, but no one knew that until recently because no, there were no citations issued until July. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you, Bill and Dave, for those very helpful and insightful comments. We appreciate that background and, and your expertise. So as Bill mentioned, I will be talking to you a little bit today about whistleblower claims. Now, why do we want to spend some time on whistleblower claims? Well, some of the largest damages, including reputational damage to companies, uh, if it's covered in the media, arise out of whistleblower claims. 
hundreds of retaliation and whistleblower lawsuits have been filed across the country. So, and someone I think could mute there, that would help. Thank you. So workers who, according to Lauren Sweat, workers who report unsafe conditions and wrongdoing have a range of legal protections from retaliation. That is the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Labor for Occupational Self and, and Safety and Health. And we actually tried to get Ms. Sweat to speak with us today, but uh, she had a few other things going on. So hold that maybe next time. Um, second, the OSHA online whistleblower complaint form is available online for anyone who wants to file a complaint. Of course, they also encourage any type of written complaint. And they also encourage that if it's an emergency situation, workers simply call OSHA. OSHA the, on our website has a summary chart of all of the statutes that provide whistleblower and anti-retaliation protections. And that starts with the section 11C that Bill has already talked to you about. And that of course prohibits employers from retaliating against employees for exercising their rights under the OSH Act. And that could include uh, failing a safety or um, filing, I'm sorry, filing a safety or health complaint with OSHA. It could include raising a health or safety concern with an employer. It could include participating in an OSHA investigation or inspection. And it could include reporting a work-related injury or illness. So all of those types of protected activities are clearly covered. OSHA also enforces 23, I think last count, federal whistleblower statutes that protect based on retaliation for filing or for doing any of these, engaging in any of these other types of protected activity. There's been a very large increase in whistleblower claims and a lot of that increase, I think maybe at one point it was stated to be 40% are COVID related. So uh, we're, we can expect, I believe, to see more of that. State whistleblower protections. I wanted to start with New Jersey because there's a case that's been filed and it's still pending. I think uh, last the parties were engaged in discovery. It's in New Jersey and it was filed under the Conscientious Employee Protection Act. And in this case, I, I should start by telling you though that years ago, there was a case under this act, the New Jersey Conscientious Employee Protection Act that resulted in an almost $2 million verdict. Now that was not a COVID related case. So fast forward now to this year. And when COVID began making headlines back in March, a man by the name of Charles Collins pulled out a protective face mask, not one of the type that Bill has shown you, but a mask that was meant to protect workers against um, you know, metal particles and things that they might uh, might fly into their face at the workplace. And he, uh, and it, it protected also a good, a, against wood chips flying into their face. So other employees had safety concerns and they followed suit and did exactly what Mr. Collins did, which is pulled out these masks. Well, shortly thereafter, Mr. Collins receives a text message from his supervisor saying, you shouldn't have done that. Now, now this is the way the story goes, I wanna tell you, this is all per the, per the lawsuit. 
uh, you shouldn't have done that. And we don't have enough masks to cover and protect everyone from COVID-19. Well, that got a little attention, and not long thereafter, Mr. Collins uh, filed a lawsuit, and you, you can know that he probably used the word Corvid more than once to explain that his supervisor didn't understand what was going on. And the lawsuit was filed under this New Jersey Conscientious Employee Protection Act, saying that he feared endangering his mother and his young nephew who lived with him. So then came the ultimatum, as the story goes. Mr. Collins was confronted with the ultimatum of, well, return to work or resign. It's up to you. So he stayed home and then claimed he was fired. The employer, of course, have, has a different story. And that, by the way, is a manufacturing employer in New Jersey. And, um, and Mr. Collins then filed a lawsuit under this New Jersey Act. States other than New Jersey have many different types of whistleblower protections. California, New York, Colorado, most states have some form, but the thing is they're all over the map. The relief is very wide and varied. Some protect as to public employers, some protect as to private employers, some both. Some protect only for outrageous conduct like Alabama, but at a minimum, most states have some type of wrongful discharge or violation of public policy type claim available to people who feel they have been retaliated against under these laws. There are also local protections in some cities that may not even have state laws that cover it. For example, Seattle, Philadelphia, Chicago, all have, and, and many other cities have, and localities have, uh, have special protections. And then of course, you've also got all of the regular anti-retaliation statutes that may come into play because as you might imagine, these claims can often be coupled with other types of claims as lawsuits may be filed. I wanted to touch very briefly because the last time I spoke to you at one of these webinars, just uh, two or three months ago, I talked to you about the Amazon case, and I won't cover that again, but I will tell you that the judge in the Amazon case filed in New York at, at, at an Amazon facility, um, the judge has dismissed that case. And as Bill was talking to you earlier about um, meatpacking plants, uh, you know, food, we handled a Smithfield Foods case and got that case dismissed for exactly the reasons that Bill recited. That And the same thing applies to this Amazon case. The judge said that Amazon was following the then current OSHA guidelines and CDC recommendations and granted Amazon's motion to dismiss, which, by the way, the case was based on Amazon allegedly failing to follow public health guidelines and COVID workplace safety uh, regulations that was filed in June by several Amazon employees and it has already been dismissed. But the important point for today's purposes to tell you about this case is that Judge Brian Kogan out of New York deferred to OSHA uh, for an injunction that would require Amazon to follow public health standards. He said, if there is relief here, it's with OSHA. Those allegations, I want to tell you one more thing about the case, and those allegations included Amazon, an allegation that Amazon 
violated public nuisance and workplace safety laws by engaging in, quote, purposeful miscommunication with workers and by prioritizing productivity at the expense of safety. Uh, I think right now the count is uh, 20,000 frontline employees at Amazon and Whole Foods had tested positive or been presumed positive for COVID. But keep in mind that's over out of over a million frontline workers at Amazon and uh, Whole Foods. Last so, thing on- uh, excuse me, Rosalie, I hate to interrupt, but a uh, couple questions. Number one, I, I guess, uh, you know, all this whistleblower, these whistleblower claims and everything else, they've got to be really a burden on smaller employers who really don't have a lot of uh, resources to defend those. And uh, would would the whistleblower claims that you're, you've discussed so far apply to uh, employers that have less than 100, for example, employees? That's exactly right, Bill, and thank you for that question, because actually, as the litigation is being tracked nationwide, it's unfortunately for smaller employers tending to fall mostly on them. If you look at just percentage of employers under 100 compared to employers 100 to 200, up to you know thousands, hundreds of thousands, the bulk of the claims thus far. Now, why is that? I mean, there could be a myriad of reasons. One problem may be related to just you know, ha- not having the wherewithal and the financial resources to have all of the right plans in place, as, as Bill talked about earlier. Um, you know, it may also be those cases are litigated um, longer uh, and, and, you know, because somebody isn't able to pay what is demanded to settle before the case even is filed. So there could be a lot of other reasons, too, but those may be a couple of them. But, yes, they're not immune, unfortunately, for small business. And, in fact, uh, some of the litigation has been filed against them at a higher rate. So um, if, an employee, if an employee makes a complaint, is it very important that the employer somehow uh, have a witness and document uh, exactly what the complaint was uh, so that they can't change it later. Well, I was a whistleblower when reality is the original complaint had nothing to do with whistleblowing or complaining about safety and health in the workplace. Exactly. That's exactly right. And we've seen actually cases where someone else tries to uh, tack on to another employee's Say, say employee A files a, a complaint or goes to HR or goes to their supervisor and raises an issue or even goes outside the organization, which is often what's required for whistleblowing. And at that point, another employee tries to claim that they are the one who first reported when, in fact, that is not the case. So, yes, very important to keep good documentation as to what was and wasn't said. I wanted to touch just briefly on one other issue as a more of a as a teaser for an upcoming um, webinar that we'll be doing too on vaccination issues. And many many employers are asking this question right now. Many of you professionals out there on this call, can we mandate vaccinations? 
And so far, the answer is yes, but the devil's in the details. You know, you have to be wary of any state law or local law out there. You also have to be wary of, in particular, religious and disability accommodation issues and making sure you're engaging in the interactive process if someone raises, I cannot get a vaccination because of these reasons. The EEOC is saying it's encouraging employers to encourage employees to get them, not to mandate them. And I think we'll see more on this, but right now the current state of the law is what I've described. I just would say, you know, be wary because there are some pitfalls out there. All right. I would like yeah. to turn it back. Yes. Go ahead. I was going to say, yeah, Rosie, um, I think that the um, EEOC is currently working on updating its guidance in terms of religious accommodation. Um, and there are, it really depends on the type of workforce we're talking about. For example, emergency responders, um, healthcare providers, people that work in nursing, assisted living homes. There's a much more compelling reason that in terms of whether you can mandate uh, as a term and condition of employment, meaning, and there may not be a way to fully accommodate that. That is, and, and, and so these issues are going to come up. It's very different than typically for the type of work that uh, three of us are do, that do on this uh, uh, panel. And so that distinction, it's not going to be a one size fits all. Uh, and the further kind of additional layer of nuance on the vaccination is going to be the states are going to be involved in determining how the vaccinations are prioritized. And so dealing with you multi-state employers out there, you may have differing cascading scenarios depending on which jurisdiction your workers are in. So this issue, uh, the, the implementation of vaccination, which of course we all welcome from a public health standpoint, presents some very potentially challenging issues to employers with respect to the safety of the workers, the safety of customers, and of the operations generally. Thank you. Thank you. Good, great points, Dave. Bill, I think we turn it back to you at this point. Well, thank you, Rosalie. Um, I want to talk really briefly about the fact that we are expecting an emergency temporary standard to be issued by OSHA. Now, our our marketing material said 100 days, but I, I really think it's going to be almost immediately in the first 30 days because there has just been such an outcry by labor uh, and other uh, employee groups to have an emergency temporary standard, which is allowed under the OSH Act, um, that I think there will be one uh, soon. Now, some say, well, what's been holding OSHA back during this time? They could have just issued an emergency temporary standard and uh, that sort of thing. Now, as you all heard before, OSHA has issued a plethora of guidelines. Uh, 3990 back in March, which was an OSHA publication number. That's why I'm referencing that. And 4045 in June to explain to employers how to put together a plan. And then there's separate sheets, separate guideline sheets for virtually all of the industries out there. And uh, so the problem is that nine 
emergency temporary standards have been issued in the past, since 1979, nine of them. Uh, out of the six that were challenged, five were invalidated by the courts. So you can see that OSHA, uh, you know, as an agency over, you know, these last 50 years has, has not exactly batted well when it came to emergency temporary standards. And so instead of, I'm speculating a bit, but instead of spending their time in court, OSHA has focused on the tools that they have, the general duty clause, the respiratory protection standard, failure to report or record um, uh, the work-related COVID cases. Now, we received a question in whether or not you have to report uh, COVID cases on your summary. First of all, before we ever get to that, does it have to be on your 300 log? Okay. And to determine that, you have to determine whether it is work-related. And there is there are criteria on the OSHA website to do that. So I would urge anyone, everyone, to take a close look as to whether it's really work-related. Because if it's not work-related, then it does not have to be recorded. And that's very important because if that individual is hospitalized, inpatient uh, within uh, within 24 hours, uh, they the employer has to report that. So if it's not work-related, however, then there's no obligation to report. And, and if you're picking up the phone and calling OSHA, OSHA is likely to either send you a rapid response questionnaire to answer in five days or uh, initiate an investigation. So getting back to the emergency temporary standard likelihood, as many of you know, I'm sure Virginia, Michigan, and uh, California has just became uh, effective yesterday, their emergency temporary standards. And they kind of follow the OSHA, federal OSHA guidelines, which would be uh, assessing each job, not just the whole workplace, but each position in the workplace. It's very important so that the plan, the COVID-19 plan has to assess each individual job as very high, high, medium, or low. And most workplaces, vast majority of them that aren't healthcare or uh, nursing homes or that sort of thing uh, are medium, uh, medium uh, risk. And so then there are specific requirements in these emergency temporary standards and the federal guidelines uh, to a lesser degree, but the guidance has uh, some. But in the emergency temporary standards that have been passed by some of the state plan states under OSHA, uh, OSHA federal OSHA can delegate to a state plan state like Indiana, Kentucky, Michigan, North Carolina. Those are all state plan states. So they've issued engineering, administrative work practice, and personal protective equipment uh, requirements for each level, facial coverings, distancing, hygiene, and sanitation. So it's one thing to have a guideline on distancing. It's another thing to have a legal requirement that if the inspector walks into the workplace and sees there is social distancing, they can actually cite for that specific requirement. And then there's 
requirements for testing and contract trace, tracing and germination, what constitutes close contact. And they're using the revised, typically the revised CDC, that it's a cumulative amount of 15 minutes of contact. They're either using 24 hours or 48 hours um, prior to symptoms appearing. So uh, contact tracing and then isolation, quarantine and return to work conditions. So in a mandated standard, these are required. And so, however, you know, in another area, there, there would not be a requirement to issue a standard at all even. And that's the area that Dave is gonna to talk to us about now. Right, Dave? Yeah, so, I sure am. It deals with federal contractors. I Dave, wanted to- Dave, Rosie, I wanted to make sure that you cover one question too from the audience that related to what you said right before this, which was, could they mandate that could I assume this means could regulators or someone mandate vaccines based on a bona fide occupation, for example, as first respondents transmitting to patients? Yeah, and I think the short answer is yes. And that's, that's why I'm saying there's a spectrum of jobs and depending on the responsibilities. But when it comes to a situation like a first responder, and there's any number of uh, different occupations that would meet this, where you not only, it's not only your own safety, it's the safety of the persons you're interacting with, and it could actually prevent and, and protect uh, the safety of patients or, or the others that are receiving the, the medical care. So the short answer is yes. Uh, it gets more interesting as you move down the line as to whether you can mandate it in other work settings. But those with a level of confidence, we can say yes to that. One, one other, I just want to spend a moment on this emergency temporary standard that Bill's done such a nice job of, of setting up for us. Um, in, and as described, the current administration has been under enormous pressure to issue uh, an emergency temporary standard. And many people may be familiar with rulemaking, which normally is a very protracted process. You have to go out for notice and comment. You put the proposal out. You gather the comments, you look at the burdens, you do all this. It takes months if you do it on a fast track and can take longer. An emergency temporary standard does not have any of those attributes. The, the agency comes in, the government comes in, they publish it in the Federal Register, and it is effective typically in 30 days or less. So I want to underscore, I think the bill is right, that the incoming team, we understand, has an emergency temporary standard ready. Indeed, the Biden administration has been highly critical of the current administration for its failure to place an emergency temporary standard in place to address COVID-19. Um, so how else? That's, that's, if you will, a tool in the toolbox, an emergency temporary standard, and it can go pretty much like that. But there, there, there are additional uh, remedies and, and tools uh, for the administration to look at, and that really involves federal contracting. And roughly 25 to 30% of, of the employers in this country are federal contractors. Government isn't quite sure how many people it's got as vendors, because in addition to those that directly contract with the government, there are all the downstream, second, third tier, fourth tier companies that are involved in supporting the federal contracting efforts. Typically, when the government imposes federal contracting obligations 
all the entities that are involved in supporting the contract are subject to whatever obligations the government might impose. Think about EEO and affirmative action, one that pe most people don't even think about, but it's part of the government contracting scheme. And the government says, if you want the privilege of a contract, you will agree to these terms. But take, extrapolating those concepts, the, the uh, executive branch, because remember, they are the customer, they can impose whatever terms they want. It's very simple. The president issues an executive order, and the executive order can be very prescriptive. Bill described before the different types of requirements that might be put in there. These could be highly prescriptive. You might think how someone, if they were at the AFL-CIO, might write up what they would like in the order, because that's probably who's going to be drafting this. They will write up with a level of detail. The president then, with the simple stroke of a pen, issues an executive order. The executive order, in plain speak, says, if you want to become a federal contractor or continue your federal contracts, you must meet these new requirements. In this case, a uh, COVID-19 set of probably very detailed requirements. That is simply put in place as contracts are renewed, new purchase orders, et cetera. This may be a standalone executive order, or it may be part of a broader, uh, there previously was some attention called to what was called fair pay and safe workplaces that may be revised in a slightly different form to overcome a legal hurdle that, that existed because of its prior repeal. But we do envision that the executive order, in addition, this is not in lieu of, so we, we may, so those of you that are federal contractors may actually have two new sets of requirements to be mindful of. And I agree with Bill, we could be talking in less than 30 days. We could be talking by March 1 that these are coming. So let me just pause there and see if either Bill or, or Rosie have any questions or comments on those points. Well, uh, Dave, one thing, you know, uh, Confederate, can college, private colleges or public colleges or universities be federal contractors? Yeah, that's a great question. They sure can. Um, and and um, the, the difference is many higher ed institutions receive grants for research. Typically, a grant alone doesn't trigger it, but they also receive contracts under which they perform a variety of services and assessments. All of those contracts get covered. And I will note that it, when the last time these types of um, um, uh, social responsibility programs were implemented by the Obama administration. They took a very expansive view and they did not limit it just to the traditional contracting vehicle. They said federal grants. So basically anyone that's getting federal money, if you're an employer, there's this big string on it now and you will come into line. And I think if you think, if you pull back, whether you think that's a good idea or not, and you look at President-elect Biden, who has said, he is like a laser going to focus on responding to COVID-19 in a very significant way. This, these responses that Bill has outlined and potential for executive order to influence federal contractors become two immediate way game changers in addition to rolling out the vaccine. And of course, the, the whole um, tenor of, of enforcement by agencies can make a huge difference, can it, Dave? Oh, yes. And that, that would be the other thing. You know, we, we touched on um, 
personnel and we you know we I think everyone recognizes that the makeup the, of of the new Congress, whether it's the Senate's going to be Republican or democratically controlled, will be decided based on the pending Senate races in Georgia. Um, but but the the makeup of of the Senate will also influence the ability to get leaders of the agencies nominated and confirmed into those roles. Um, however, even absent confirmed leadership, as we have seen during the Trump administration, because there has not been a confirmed head of OSHA for four years now. There was a nominee who couldn't get confirmed. Um, and, and since then, there's been no nominee. We've had a deputy, a presidentially appointed deputy, who, who we referenced before, Lauren Sweat, highly capable and qualified, but not Senate confirmed. What does that mean? What does the playbook look like on January 20th? You put your political deputy in place, at 12.01 p.m. on the afternoon of Wednesday, January 20th, and you can now start moving forward immediately on emergency temporary standard or some of these other changes. You don't need to wait for the Senate confirmation. Now, so we think uh, these changes are gonna occur quickly, very quickly. Sorry, Rosie. No, Dave, uh, a question came in. We talked about healthcare in, in terms of vaccinations, the question is, are nursing homes considered federal contractors since most of their revenue comes from Medicare, Medicaid funding? Yeah, it's a good question. The one area that the um, Labor Department historically has shied away, has said it will not regulate as a federal contract, is uh, TRICARE, the, the military-related program. And they did so as a very practical matter. It was, it was one of the few times the federal government, which usually is very dominant in the marketplace, um, where the majority of providers said, we're not going to agree to all. We, we provide a variety of care services. We will not agree just because we get a TRICARE contract that we have to do all these other things. Um, that, that being said, I think it's likely that these new programs will be very expansive, uh, and 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 because uh, that's the only way that President Biden can fulfill his pledge to put these requirements out to every corner uh, and every type of workplace. So the Medicare funding, which can influence pharmacies, hospitals, healthcare providers, go it, it, that's like water spilled on the tabletop. It gets everything wet, and uh, that makes it very attractive when you're trying to use that mechanism to expand these obligations. So, Dave, when it comes to legislation, you touched on the fact that the two races, uh, Senate races in Georgia, will have a big, big effect. For mm -hmm. example, if both go Republican, then, you know, there'll be a clear majority. But if they split, um, there will still be a Republican majority. But if they go both go uh, Democratic, then it will be up to the vice president then as a tiebreaker. And in the area of occupational safety and health, isn't there a kind of a, a, a danger that some uh, few Republican senators might defect toward uh, OSHA reform? Uh, there is, and because there's actually been Republican senators who've been critical of the current Trump DOL, Secretary Scalia, saying that, that it really it would be helpful if you would promulgate a federal standard so that we wouldn't be grappling with some of the guidances and some of these more general points. Why not just, I mean, look, 
most and the the argument goes something like this most of us when we drive on the highway there's a speed limit we may agree with it we may not we may not follow it but there's a posted speed limit it isn't just sort of drive at whatever speed you think is safe well that's the criticism I don't think it's a fair criticism, but that is the somewhat of the criticism that's made to having general duty or these generalized guidelines. The answer is put real teeth in it, make it a requirement, a regulation, and there's a lot of Republicans that find that attractive and that are saying, and let's give business a safe harbor that goes with it. Um, if you comply with the new guidelines, you also will be immune from the types of claims that uh, Rosie has described for us these these sort of ancillary claims. We're going to put a clear set of standards. If in good faith you comply, you can. If you comply, you get certain benefits. People are safe. You're insulated from these types of state law claims and other types of claims. And uh, many, both Republicans and Democrats, are beginning to think that may make some sense. So when we uh, when we look at uh, at the regulatory system, we look at the effect that the administration can have on the agencies just by appointing deputies, you know, in particular, we're talking about the Department of Labor. Today, we're focused mm -hmm. on OSHA as, as, a, as a specific agency. Then we see that, that over the course of the first 100, 120, 150 days, the, the regulatory uh, landscape for employers could dramatically uh, change such that they would have more and more uh, specific and detailed requirements to fulfill. And I'm going to tell you, Dave, I've, I've uh, been talking about uh, the OSHA 3990 almost since March. And I think there are a lot of employers that still don't, aren't aware of it. They aren't you know, maybe don't have a written plan. Right. What, what would you say is, and Rosie, uh, Rosalie as well, how would you rate the importance of an employer having a written plan at this time to show uh, that they are trying to comply uh, with and eliminate or reduce substantially risks in the workplace? I would say huge. Mm -hmm. It, hugely important and important that it be followed and implemented because it could actually be a problem if you don't follow it. But you want to make sure it's updated regularly and uh, and that you follow it. I would agree with that. Okay. And if you take, I was going to say, if you take nothing from today, go to those guidances for your particular industry that Bill referenced, look at them make your plan one that, that is written out so that you can demonstrate and uh, as Rosalie says, enforce it, follow it. It goes a long way, whether you have a whistleblower claim, an OSHA complaint, litigation claim under state law, a lot of the answer is gonna be, I did what the guidance required, I can show you I did it in real time and I've been complying. So my, that's, that's how those cases well, that's how those cases got dismissed that I described earlier, too, is exactly what Dave just said. The case against Smithfield Foods, the case against Amazon, exactly. And so I, I just want to, my two cents on this is this. Let's say that you are the OSHA Compliance Safety and Health Officer. 
and you walk into a workplace and you don't see any barriers, you don't see any signage, you don't see any uh, homemade hand sanitizer like I had to make during the shortage or anything. What is your impression going to be about the compliance of that employer versus going in, seeing the signage, seeing the symptoms signed up, seeing the distancing marked out, seeing the barriers, seeing PP, well, not PPE, but just facial coverings available and a hand sanitizer right, right at the front. Don't you think that that compliance officer being, you know, a human being is going to have a very different point of view about that employer. And then if the employer says, oh, and by the way, we have this written plan of compliance and they can review that, that's the difference. And so the impression that, that the workplace is making is vital for, for the regulators. And they'll tell you that too. It's not just subliminal, it's, it's, it's obvious. If they walk into your plant and the first thing that happens is they're almost run over by a fork truck, you know, you've got a problematic inspection there. So, uh, and I've had too many of those, believe me, over the years. So, you know, if, if they come in and, and you are trying to protect or your clients are trying to protect their employees, and that's obvious, I'll tell you what the other thing is, plaintiff's attorneys, they always say, did you post a sign? Did you post a sign? Did you make a warning? So warning signs and postings, that those you just think about this. Every sign you put up, you just think of that as a lawsuit preventer. And it's not that's not the reason you're putting it up. You're trying to protect your employees. But remember that that is so important as evidence of your good faith, of your compliance, of your goodwill. Uh, and trying to comply. And yes, if you comply with the CDC, that helps. But most important in this OSHA area, look at the OSHA website, get every piece of paper or image, I should say, uh, out of the website that pertains to your uh, industry and follow that as well as you can. Dave and Rosalie, do you have any other comments about that? I just gonna say that's the gold standard. And if you could do that, that, that's what we're talking about right there. Exactly. And I would just add that it, it also helps dramatically in terms of employee productivity and morale, which is something that all employers value. So uh, very so good. Any wrap-up comments? I want to follow up with you, though. The thing you just said is so important. Every workplace has a lot of good employees, in my experience. And the good employees and everybody in the workplace wants to have a safe place of work. So all of those things that we just discussed, how does that help, in your view, Rosalie, employee morale? I think that if an employee and employees as a group feel that their employer values them, values their contributions, and values their workplace safety and health, that they are going to return that in spades. I mean, it's going to be a win-win for both parties. They're going to see what efforts are being made or hear about them. 
They're going to see whether their supervisors are following or not following. They're going to see whether employees are being disciplined or at least counseled if they're not wearing their masks because they're standing around the water cooler talking or eating while they're chatting with their friend or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and they're going to see those extra efforts like the portable washing stations that are brought in and so forth. And they're going to uh, they're going to value their employer more because of it. So if an employee comes up to the to the supervisor or what have you and, and has a safety and health concern, is the appropriate response just get back to work and you know we'll talk about that later or should they sit down with them right at that time and try to address the concern sure sit down with them right away and address it and and the the other option is exactly what happened in that case filed by colin that i told everyone about earlier the employer dismissed it or the supervisor the immediate supervisor obviously was not well trained didn't even know the word was COVID, not Corvid. And, uh, you know, that, that comes back to haunt. And the fact that there's a text message, you know, we all know texts are, are like emails and the written word now. So it's often the first place folks look in investigations is at the texts. Well, Peter, it's been, this has been a great program. Thank you both, Dave and Bill, for your, for your great comments and your active and interactive discussion. And uh, we'll look forward to seeing everyone at the next one. Peter, please uh, go ahead and, and tell everyone what they need to know here. Thanks, Rosie, and also to our panel for sharing their thoughts and advice on today's topic. If you'd like to connect with any of our lawyers on the program, please search for them on the ELA website at ela.law. There you can sign up to receive invitations for our upcoming webinars, download white papers, get access to on-demand content from the online library, or use the ELA's exclusive Global Employer Handbook. You've been listening to Employment Matters, a podcast brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm Pete Waltz. Thanks for listening.